We've got the pleasure of having Terry Virgo with us. Uh, some of you may not know Terry, you might be new to the church. Terry Virgo founded New Frontiers um, a few years ago, and it started with just a handful of people on the south coast of England, uh, and there's now 2,000 plus churches in over 70 nations. Terry's teaching on grace has been foundational to us and many, many churches around the world. And actually, it's Terry's teaching on Ephesians that really sort of sparked my love and enthusiasm for Ephesians, hence why we're doing the book of Ephesians at the moment. So why don't we welcome Terry as he comes and speaks to us. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be back again with you and to enjoy the Lord's presence in this uh, lovely time of worship. Thank you so much. Such a joy to uh, get to know you and keep coming to you over the years. Good. Well, we're in Ephesians. Uh, while you're turning there, maybe I can just mention there are some books on the back. Uh, uh, one of them, Life Tastes Better, is an evangelistic book. And uh, it's, you know, you get these conversations with people and sometimes you can't finish them. Uh, you don't have time to bring it to a conclusion, but you wish you could leave them with something. Uh, well, that's what this has been written for. Uh, and it's only, it's only £1.50, so it's less than a birthday card. Okay, so I just commend that to you. And there are other books, God's Treasured Possession, most recent written during the COVID season when you couldn't go anywhere. And I felt God said to me, uh, write a book. I was glad for that discipline, and I'm glad it's gone so well. So that and a number of other books there on the table. So please take advantage of that uh, before you go if you'd like to. Ephesians chapter 4. We're just going to read a few verses, uh, verses uh, 1 to 3, okay? Therefore, my beloved brothers, whom I long to see... My, sorry, wrong. It's all, it's all true, but that, <laughs> but that happens to be Philippians. Sorry about that. Ephesians 4. Therefore, the prisoner, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Father, thank you so much for your presence with us here. Thank you for yours. Thank you for the many truths that we've celebrated in prayer and worship this morning. We're so grateful. And Father, we acknowledge our need of you as we turn to your word, we pray, Holy Spirit, please come right now. Please rest upon us. Be our teacher. Take the things of Christ, reveal them to us. Lord, we want to engage with you together. So we pray, Holy Spirit, come. Rest on us. Meet our needs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, chapter 4 represents a turning point in the epistle. The first three chapters have been setting out all the incredible things that God has done for us in Christ. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, being led away by all kinds of wicked things, false thinking, our own flesh, the works of darkness, captured us. And then Jesus came and set us free and made us new creation. And so the first three chapters are really telling us what God has done. In broad terms, from that, this point on, it's more 
an exhortation in view of that. And, and really, that's the kind of nature of Christianity. Christianity isn't a list of rules that if you keep them, you can get to God. It's not like, here are some duties. If you will perform these duties, if you will read your Bible, go to church, do stuff, maybe you'll find God. That, that's not Christianity. Christianity is God has done these phenomenal things. We've been celebrating them in our songs of worship. Jesus paid the price on the cross. He removed all our guilt. He removed our shame. He did amazing things for us. And therefore, in view of that, and so it starts with therefore, and that, you know, view of what all that has happened, all that you've been learning about, of what God did for us. Therefore, I'm encouraging you, I'm exhorting, Paul says, that we respond in a way that's worthy of what God has done. And so Christianity is an attempt to respond to what God has done for us. It's not an attempt to get into his good books. It's not trying hard to please him in that sense. It is, no, no, he's done it. He's paid the price. And so it's a responsive thing. You'll find turning points like that in several of the epistles where it turns from all these things God has done and now it comes to, come on, let's respond to that. Let's respond to that together. And of course, Paul has been setting out incredible new truths. It says in Ephesians 3 that the mysteries previously hidden has now been revealed through God's holy apostles and prophets, things never mentioned before. And we need to understand that. The Bible, the whole Bible is inspired. It's all God-breathed. It comes down out of heaven. But the revelation gets brighter and brighter as you go on. And so the New Testament sheds much more light than the Old Testament. We love the Old Testament. We feed on what it has to say. But the New Testament brings more light there's more revelation. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The New Testament interprets the Old Testament for us. It shows us more that we need to understand. That's what the Bible teaches of itself. And then we need to understand this. Jesus said to his apostles who were with him, I've got more to say to you, but you couldn't receive it yet. I've got more to say. But when the Holy Spirit comes... He will take on mind and reveal them to you, reveal things to you that I can't say to you at the moment. So even in the Gospels, there's a kind of restraint on what, Paul, well, on what Jesus can say. Cause they, not because he couldn't tell us. He could tell us anything. He knows all the mysteries. But they couldn't contain it. They couldn't receive it. And he says that plainly. He says, I've got more to say to you. But when the Holy Spirit comes, then, then you'll know. So Paul says in Ephesians 3, now things that have never been previously revealed. So if you study the Old Testament, you won't understand this. If you only live in what has been said before, you won't understand this. Because it's been revealed now, Paul says. It's new revelation. Sometimes people get stuck in the Old Testament. They carry Old Testament perspectives on. And Paul says, no, no, these are mysteries previously hidden. You would have looked at that in chapter 3. Now, there's fresh, fresh revelation. Because, you know, Jesus said at one time, I am the true vine. You're the branches. He said this, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you've got no part in me. I mean, someone says, uh, eat, my eat my flesh? It says, many turned away from him on that day. Well, when a guy says, if you want to eat my flesh, you think, Hold on. Come on, what are you talking about? Eat your flesh, drink your blood. And then you know, he thinks he's a tree now. I am the vine, you're the branch. You think, 
You see, it's hard when there's a guy who's kind of, what, six foot tall, standing next to you and saying, eat me, drink me. <laughs> and you think, what is he talking about? But Jesus says, you can't understand it now. The things I want to say to you, but you can't understand it now. But when I go to the Father, the Holy Spirit will come on you, apostles, and give you revelation. And so, beloved, we need to understand that Paul, in Ephesians, Colossians, all these other wonderful New Testament epistles, Peter, John, they're telling us things we wouldn't know otherwise. That's why I always feel the epistles are the kind of cream of the Bible. Because the Old Testament's wonderful, wonderful. New Testament sheds light on it. The epistles tell us the things that couldn't be said even in Jesus' life. That's what the Bible itself teaches. And so if it wasn't for the apostles and what they teach, we wouldn't know. You know, there's a guy hanging on a cross. What does it mean? Who knows? Who knows what, who knows what that means? The epistles tell us. The apostles tell us. They explain to us. You see, that didn't look like a religious event. It's not at the temple. It's not even in a synagogue. It's on the trash heap outside the city where you put your rubbish. And he's dying with crooks either side of him. What does that mean? Who knows what it means? The apostles tell us what it means. And the epistles tell us what we, we wouldn't otherwise know. There's a guy dying. Who knows what that means? Paul tells us God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their iniquities against them. It's what these, these wonderful epistles tell us, these mysteries previously hidden. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This mystery previously hidden, now revealed. Now Christ is in us. We are in him. He's in us like a, like a vine and branches. But when there's a guy sitting next to you saying it, what does that mean? But when the Spirit comes. And so we New Testament people, we are a community brought to birth by the Spirit. It's important to know that. In the Old Testament, the people of God were people with the blood of Abraham in their veins, if you like. God came to Abraham, made him amazing promises, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the Twelve, the whole nation of Israel, Ten Commandments. God has revealed himself to a unique nation. He's the only you have I known of all the nations of the earth. He wasn't speaking to Russians and Mexicans. and He was speaking to this people. Only you have I known. And to be a person of God, you had to be in that place, that nation. They carried the light. They were the light of the world. Then when Jesus came, that expands. It's, it's not Israel replaced. It's Israel internationalized. We are planted in. We're part of. We're included. But the way it happens to us is by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes. And so in this passage we've just read, Paul says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. See, it's no longer just be a good son of Abraham. Come on, keep the Ten Commandments. It's interesting, at this turning point, Ephesians 4, now I've told you all the things I've done, now here's what you've got to do. Keep the Ten Commandments. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't put a load of responsibility on you in that rule-keeping way. It says just we're worthy of this incredible thing God's done for you. God has made you accepted. God's called you to himself. We heard through the prophetic word. Accepted, delighted, and God loves us. And so live worthy of it. It's all been given free. Live worthy of it. And, and, and because you are now a people of the Spirit, all right? So the New Testament church is a Spirit-filled community. 
That's the uniqueness. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out. The new creation, 3,000 people were added. Added, not saved, added. Well, they were saved, but it says they were added. It's like this new community on planet Earth that have never existed before, with the potential to be international, and with a new calling, a new people on planet Earth who know God, who walk with God, who have God with them. And so Paul's saying, look, make every effort to maintain that unity. So what is the unity of the Spirit? What is the unity of the Spirit? Well, it's the unity which the Holy Spirit gives. It's a, it's a supernatural thing. It's, sometimes we use the word spirit kind of informally. You know, you could go to a party and say, there was a nice spirit there. Or we, felt, you know, we use the word kind of in a very informal way. But when it says it in the Bible, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. The unity of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes, it's a phenomenal thing. It's God coming upon a people, and this is what makes them recognizable. They've all been filled with the Spirit. They're all engaging with God in this extraordinary new way. And so you find, for instance, that Peter is praying one day and he sees a vision and in the vision he sees a sheet coming down from heaven recorded in Acts chapter 10. It's a, big, it's a big turning point in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 10 a very important thing happens. Peter sees the sheet and he, and he hears these words arise, kill and eat these animals. And Peter says no, no, I don't eat that kind of stuff. You know, he's a Jewish guy. We don't eat that. No, it's unclean food. I don't eat it. That's his background. His background's Jewish. Don't touch it. And so it happens a second time. Arise, Peter, kill and eat. No, no, I don't. Third time. Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And God, Peter says, no, I'm not going to touch it. And God says, what I call clean, don't you call unclean. What's going on here? I mean, it's, this is a new day. You're, you're calling this... I mean, that's unclean food. We Jews don't eat that stuff. It's in our Old Testament. We don't eat that stuff. God's beginning a new thing. And then he's just pondering, what on earth did that mean? And there's kind of a knock at the door. And there's some Gentiles at the door. Well, Gentiles, hmm. Uh, what do you want? Will you come with us? Come with you? You're Gentiles. Yeah, our... Our leader, our centurion, Cornelius, God spoke to him. God spoke to a Gentile and told us to send for you. So Peter, having had these three visions, okay, I'm supposed to go with this unclean guy. See, that's his Jewish background. You don't go with Gentiles. And so he goes to their home and he takes some friends with him. And this is strange territory. Do you know, I believe that's why it's recorded twice in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10 tells the story. Acts chapter 11, two chapters. Acts chapter 11 tells it all over again. Because Peter, when he goes back to Jerusalem, they say, what were you doing going with Gentiles? And he tells the same story all over again. It's like Luke, writing the book of Acts, wants us to note this. I'll have it recorded twice so you understand. It's a very big turning point in the church's history. And Peter goes to them, and I guess he was nervous. I step into a Gentile home, that means I can't go to the temple. 
because I've just made myself unclean. I've walked into a Gentile home. Okay. So Peter, these, these apostles, beloved, they had to fight their way through from what it used to be to be godly to what it now is to be godly. You understand what I'm saying? They, these early believers had to make this huge transition. Okay, so now I'm going into a Gentile home. I can't go to the temple now. I'm going to get cleansed up because I'm going. And, and he, they say, come and tell us then. Tell us what is the message. And Peter starts preaching the gospel. And while he's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on them, on the Gentiles. And he hears them all speaking in tongues and praising God. It's, what are you doing? It's like, what's going on here? they received the Holy Spirit like we have. Man alive, what's happening? God is on a mission. God is on a bigger mission than us. You know, sometimes people say to me, we're coming up with our church mission statement. You know, this is our statement. Maybe we can get God interested in our mission. No, no, God's on a mission. And we're invited to join in. All right? So, so, Peter, to his amazement, these people are full of the Spirit. I mean, Gentile dogs. They're full of the Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. And when he goes back, he has to tell them the story. It's funny. When he comes to chapter 11, he said, I just began to speak. In chapter 10, he says what he did say. In chapter 11, he's telling the story. I just began to speak. And when I began to speak, the Spirit fell on them like he did on us at the beginning. Wow, God is giving his spirit to the Gentiles. That is staggering. What is going on? See, on the day of Pentecost, there were Jews and devout men from every nation, it says. Like Jewish people live in England now, in America, and all sorts of places. Jewish people came up to Jerusalem. They come to the special holy day. It wasn't Gentiles, it was Jewish people. And of course, they live in these different nations, so they know these languages. But this is a big step. This is Gentile. I mean, the Gentiles, the Romans. We hate Romans. They killed our nation. They destroyed our culture. They want taxes from us. We hate them. And God's coming on them. You see, this is an amazing period in church history. And now, Paul is writing, maintain the unity of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is on them, and the Holy Spirit is on us. Now you do everything in your power to maintain the unity of the Spirit. See, it, that, that un, the unity that the gospel brings is breathtaking. It jumps over all kinds of barriers. It is universal. It's not just restricted anymore. All that was restricted in the Old Testament, all that made them different and stand apart, like when God was told Jonah to go to another nation. I don't want to go to another nation. That wasn't their style. They, they were an inclusive, exclusive group. Now God's breaking out. And we've got to learn something, which is very relevant to our culture. Maintain a, un- a God-given unity, because, hey, he's got the Holy Spirit, and you've got the Holy Spirit. Now work to maintain the unity of the Spirit. You see, it's interesting that Jesus, obviously with his 12, he had all Jews. They were all Jewish guys. Obviously, got 
the blood of Abraham in their veins, they are Jewish guys. But did you notice? He gathered 12. And within the 12, he's got Matthew, the tax collector. Well, tax collectors were hated. I mean, he talks about sinners and tax collectors, says in the Gospels. You think, what's wrong with tax collectors? Well, tax collectors, not like today, you know, tax collectors, they were Jews who, when the Romans came in and subjected this nation and said, and we want taxes from you, these were Jews who said, you want taxes from us? We'll get taxes for you. I mean, they were turncoats. They were disloyal to their own people. They went along with the Romans. And they came, come on, give us your taxes. And they pocketed quite a bit. I mean, they were disgusting people. That's why it says sinners and tax collectors. Because they're siding with the Romans. That's who they are. And I mean, they're desperately unpopular. When Zacchaeus, the tax collector, wanted to see Jesus, no one's going to let him through the crowd. He's got to climb up a tree. I mean, these are hated people. They're hated. Disgusting people. In the same 12, Simon the Zealot. Now, who were zealots? Well, they're kind of terrorists. Really, they're terrorists. They hate Romans. They will kill Romans. Given the chance, they'll kill Romans. Roman soldiers do not go singly into zealot territory. Far too dangerous. Because the zealots will kill you. The zealots said, let's get rid of these Romans. We hate Romans. They're destroying our culture, destroying our nation. We hate them. And you go along to Jesus' little group with your 12, and you sit there and you say, what are you doing here? Tax collector, what are you doing here? A zealot. I mean, you couldn't get people more different. They're incredibly different. They're, they, they are, they, their whole worldview is dramatically different. And being around Jesus is going to change them fundamentally. See, beloved, if it doesn't change us, we've just got a little hobby. I've been in America a lot last year. This kind of thing is tearing the American church apart. I'd hate to be a pastor in America. Because what you've got is people who come in committed to that and come into, but they're still living with this passion. This passion is bigger than Jesus. This is the thing. You know, it's Trump, or it's this, or it's that. And they bring it in. And, and, oh, and it's bigger than having Jesus as Lord. The worldview they bring in is bigger than, no, Jesus is by my heart. We've just sung about it. His, he, he demands my life, my soul, my all. We've just sung it. Meeting Jesus has changed all my values. If it hasn't, beloved, we're not true Christians. If we carry all these perspectives, all this worldview, you see, you were raised with a worldview. And in our world today now, there's lots of totally non-Christian views. Big issues that are affecting the way people think about culture, about gender, about all sorts of stuff. They're massively powerful things. And you could be le learning them in your home, in your school, in the group you're with. You, you take on a worldview. You adopt it. You that's who you are. You believe these things. You I always believe these things. That's what it was like for Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. You've got a worldview. You live by those values. You don't add a little bit of religion. You get transformed by meeting Christ. 
He changes your worldview. He, he takes you apart. He changes everything. And he becomes, he demands my soul, my life, my all. We sang it. We don't bring worldviews in. We abandon them at the door. See, beloved Jesus, Jesus there's a narrow gate in. To get in, it's narrow. Because you can't bring that rubbish in with you. So, tax collector, you've got to leave that. Yeah, but we do this and we can accommodate and we can... No, that is out. And this zealot attitude, kill off Romans. It's got to go because Jesus is Lord. And he's going to win their hearts, especially at the cross, which we've been singing about. When I survey the wondrous cross, all my values... Beloved, has that happened to you? No, I think this. No, because we've got to sometimes unthink it. We have to have, why am not this? And why doesn't the church do that? Because Jesus didn't say that. And we get Christian leaders saying, oh, the world thinks this now, so we better change. We better affirm it. We better bless it. Because the world is saying it now. No, you leave outside that junk. And you come to Jesus, your Lord, you're the King. You're the authoritative one. You conquer death. You know what you're talking about. And you say, this is the one that I look to, the one who trembles at my word. We don't say, well, this is my worldview when I go to church. Then we come in and we say, Lord, you are Lord. And so, beloved, because until this time, the people of God were all Jews. They all had the same worldview, in a sense. You had these strange emphasis on the edges but now it's wide and so the, the church would have had slaves and free they reckon the church at Rome would have been half slaves imagine slaves and you know you go there, half, the, half the congregation is slaves and you're told to greet them he's a slave he's a slave Yes, Jews and Greeks. They're Greeks. They choose. And so our worldviews are phenomenally different. Beloved, we just had our New Frontiers gathering at the end of last year in, in, in Cyprus. Andre Bondarenko from Ukraine worshipping, and next to him, three pastors from Russia worshipping. How, how do you do that? Well, because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. But what about, what about, no, no, no. Jesus is Lord. And that will affect every other thing. It will affect every other thing. No, it's difficult for the Russians because all they're fed is national news. You won't hear a lot of different voices. You won't hear Putin being questioned by the press. This is the view. So that's all they get fed. So it's hard for them. Hard for them, but they're standing together worshipping Jesus. Amen? So, beloved, that, that is so huge for us. That Jesus is Lord. And it's the unity of the Holy Spirit. So we, we don't have the physical presence of Jesus anymore. When they did, when he said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, he's sitting there. But now we actually know that. He, I feel like someone abiding in him. I feel like. You know, I was worshipping at home this morning before I came. I feel I'm in you, Lord. You're in me. We feel these things as we sang together 
in worship this morning. We feel this. That's who I am. And so our unity has to be worked out. And when it says at the end of one or two of the letters, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, we as English people go, plenty verse, you know. doesn't quite fit our lifestyle. We don't do that at the door. But it meant something in their culture. You know, it means something in other cultures. In France, people greet one another with kissing. Greet one another with a holy kiss. But he's my slave. Yeah, greet him with a, with a holy kiss. Come on, he's my slave. So incredible attitudes have to melt away because of the dignity Jesus just gave that slave. Now, we don't have to talk about slavery as such now. I haven't got time for that. But there were slaves in the culture. When they went to war, they brought back captives from war. The captives from war became slaves. And they had no rights, whatever. And you owned them like a piece of furniture. You know, you could sit on a chair. You could do this with a slave. He's just my feet. If you beat him to death, no one will ask you questions. He belongs to you. Do what you like to him. Now the Bible saying, kiss him. Kiss him? Yeah, give him dignity. Give him honor. Why? Because he's got the spirit like you have. He's your family. And so the New Testament is radically new and diff- different. And it still applies to us today. That we have to learn to accept one another. So this opening chapter is saying, look, look, make every effort to maintain unity of the Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit can be quenched, the Bible says. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. He's kind of dove-like. And we need, we need, I love the way you worship, if I may say. I love your openness. I don't see it everywhere. I love your focusing on Jesus and your singing. An endeavor to really honor God and welcome the presence of the Spirit. Welcome the presence of the Spirit. Sometimes that isn't apparent. Why? Well, but I think he can be grieved. Like a dove might withdraw. And Paul is saying, look, you need the Holy Spirit. In our day of hostility to Christianity, which is getting rampant, we need power. We need the Holy Spirit. We can't be careless about this. We need the Holy Spirit. And so don't grieve him. Don't make him back off. Don't say, we don't need you, Holy Spirit. We do need the Holy Spirit. And so that's what this passage is about. Now look, in view of all that I've been saying, Paul's saying, now therefore, in view of all these things, walk worthy of this calling. It says, work hard. Be diligent to preserve Verse 3, diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. The commentators tell us the word used there, be diligent, is the strongest possible word that could be used in the Greek. It means make every diligent effort to maintain unity. Now for us, we don't have our, the things they had, slave and free, Jew and Greek. It's not in our world really, but it's very easy for us to get out of step with one another. And it's not enough from this passage to say, 
He knows my phone number. If he wants to get in touch, that is not be diligent to maintain. Be diligent to maintain unity. That's what we've got to, that's what we're instructed to do now. The chapter is going to go on. In chapter 16, verse 16, it's going to say that you've come to the fullness of the stature of Christ to a mature man with every member working properly. Wow, what a church. What a church where every member is working properly. Because in this passage, it's talking about the church as a body. Ephesians is probably the richest epistle about the church. The temple, the bride, the army, the one new man, all in Ephesians. But this chapter is especially about being a body. Like hands and feet. Belonging to one another. I mean, so integrated. So mutually involved. So part of one another. Like a body. Like a body. So elsewhere in Corinthians, Paul says, the eye can't say to the ear, I don't need you. The hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. No, we are integrated. We need one another. We're a body. We're a people. God wants a people now from every tribe and tongue. But we, we dwell together in love. And it's a miracle for Ukrainians and Russians to worship together. But it's also a miracle for a group in Seven Oaks to worship together or at any location. It's a miracle. It's, it's Jesus manifest in his people. Especially where we make every effort. We work hard at. We don't, we don't, we pursue it. Make every effort. You do that? Make every effort. No, I try not to sit next to her. She offended me. She pushed in the coffee queue. You know, we're, we're a bit pathetic, aren't we, sometimes? And we back off people. I'm saying, well, she knows my phone number. She started it. That kind of language. That's not on. Make every effort to pursue this unity of the Spirit. How do you do that? It says in verse 2, with humility and gentleness and patience. This is the structure. That's how we do it. With humility. Lowliness. Now that's a, that's a word that would have been really hardly acceptable in a Roman or Greek culture. Humility. Well, humility is appropriate for slaves. I mean, they're slaves. But for, for a man who's got any self-respect, a true Greek, a true Roman, humility, come on, I'm a Roman. And Jesus came along and said, I am meek and lowly in heart. Learn of me. That's how we maintain unity, beloved, by not being very impressed with ourselves. How dare she speak to me like that? Why wasn't I told? My name didn't come on the list. Why haven't I been invited? That's not lowliness. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says, associate with the lowly. You think, why do I want to associate with the lowly? What good does that do me? I'd rather associate... I hear he's a bank manager. I hear he's, I, I, it makes sense to associate upward. He might get something from it. The Bible says associate with the lowly. And Paul says no, with lowliness. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, I am lowly. 
That means I am unimpressive. I'm lowly. That's what the word means. I'm a lowly person. Lowly people aren't quick to take offense. If their name doesn't appear on the list, they're not surprised. Why would my name appear on the list? Why would they bother to tell me? But when, we, when, we, when we've got something of an opinion of ourselves, it's hard to be forgiving to other people. Because we set the bar. How, how dare they speak to me like that? And that our, our culture is full of that. My rights. That's the, big, that's the big issue in the world today. These rights, those rights, my rights. And we can bring that into the church with us. What about my rights? That's not loneliness, is it? So Paul is saying, look, this miracle has happened. You've been brought into the family of God. You're accepted. You're going to live forever. All your sins are forgiven. You belong to God forever. This is pretty massive. So walk worthy of it. How? Well, with lowliness. You didn't get in because you were impressive. You got in because God showed mercy. So lowliness is appropriate for the believer, especially when the leader says, learn of me, I'm lowly. I'm lowly. It's incredible to me. It's incredible to me when Jesus said this, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Then he says, learn of me, I am meek and lowly of heart. But he really knocked Jesus' door and said, can I come into your world? What am I going to learn, learn of you? What should I learn of you? I'm lowly. You're the Savior. Yeah, I'm lowly. Be like me. Don't keep standing up for your rights. You're going to learn that in the world all the time. These rights and those rights, they'll keep feeding that into you. That's why we need to keep on feeding on the Bible, feeding on the Spirit. Because we'll just pick up the world, arguments, pain. What about this and what about that? What about our rights? We say, Lord, help me. I will find it easier to... Bear with, that's what the first, bearing, bearing with one another in love if I've got a lowly attitude to myself. That's what it's saying here, with lowliness. Not only with lowliness, but with gentleness. Lowliness and gentleness. What is gentleness? Well, the Greek word is the word praus. And it's the word that you use for a horse that's been broken in. So, you know, we've seen the old movies, no doubt. You know, where there's this horse, great, wonderful stallion. No one can control it. And then on comes our hero. Nothing's in there, you know. And then the horse is Prouse. It's broken in. Does that mean it's not as fast as it used to be? No, it's just as fast. Just as strong. But it doesn't kick back anymore. Gentlemen. You don't kick back. Is that a characteristic of you? Is that what they say about you? No, she doesn't kick back. He doesn't kick back. Beloved, this is essential. If we're going to grow and be the all, God's alternative society. That's what the church is, God's alternative society. It's a different kind of people. It should be that when guests come in amongst us, what is it with these people? There's a peace, there's a joy, 
there's security, there's an at-homeness. You're not all fighting for one another. That's the characteristic of the people of God. But you have to make every effort, it says here. Make every effort. Because sometimes Christians let you down. Can you believe it? They do. We let one another down. We forget. Oh, I thought, I was, oh, sorry, I forgot. Oh, why did you forget? Don't I count? See, that's the sort of, no, we put that behind us. We don't go there. We give away mercy because we've received so much mercy. That's what it says here. Make every effort. You doing it? Make every effort. Is there anyone you're out of step with? So it's got to come in your family. Sometimes it comes into your family. I don't speak to my brother. You know, we see that. We've, oh, they hurt me. We've got to find God, give us grace. This is one. The church of God is the answer to the world. We can't ask the government to legislate. Governments were not raised up by God to legislate this. If the church affects society, you'll find legislation will go with it somewhat. But while the culture is going downhill, legislation will go with that. The church's responsibility is to rise, shine, put on our beautiful garments. But that has to do with attitude and how we bear with one another, with patience. These are the three words here. With humility, with gentleness, with patience. See, love is patient. It says in 1 Corinthians 13. It's just a statement of truth. Love is patient. It is, isn't it? Wendy and I have got 21 grandkids. Can you believe it? 21 grandkids. So we have our house full of kids from time to time. They stay overnight and stuff. You know, I almost forget because I'm an old granddad now. But, you know, mothers with their little ones. Love is patient. It's amazing. You know, did they wake you up in that? Yes, dear thing. You think, dear thing. You know, love is patient. It's extraordinary what mums put up with. Because love is patient. It just is. And now it's a little bear with one another. With gentleness, lowliness, and patience. Because sometimes we mess up. When I was pastoring the first church I was ever involved with, and it was a formal evangelical church, and I'm trying to introduce life in the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, prophesying, we're transitioning. It took about four years, changing, changing, changing. And they're all steps in the way. And one day, I remember a young guy who got saved in our coffee bar evangelism and then got quite excited about God. And one morning in the meeting, we were beginning to experience spiritual gifts. You know, it's beginning to happen. Uh, and he stood up and prophesied, told us all off. So, Thus says the Lord. You know, it was really awful. And when he finished, as pastor, I stood up and said, well, do we still all love Steve? You know, he's, he's a pastor now, that guy. Do we still love him? Or we say, oh, what a terrible boy, kick him out. Because no, love is patient. We learn, we learn. And especially with experience of the Holy Spirit, you'll find the emphasis on love is there again and again. So in Ephesians chapter 4, which is going to talk about the great gifts of the Spirit, you'll find love, love, love right through this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 14, gifts of the Spirit, chapter 13, love. 1 Peter 4, about all the gifts in there, love, let love be genuine. See, sometimes the introduction of spiritual gifts is a slightly 
dodgy moment. It's times where we feel that we could make mistakes. We could get it wrong. So some will say, well, let's, let's not go there then, because it's untidy. It causes trouble. No, no, that's missing all the blessing we could get. The wonder of God's presence. And so, no, let's, let's be mature. Let's say, give us grace to love one another and keep pressing on. Otherwise, we just back off because, well, we can't, you know, get impatient with one another. We have to learn together because we want us to come. This, it's like this wonderful chapter is going to lead us to a the, like mountaintop. The church with a fullness of stature of Christ to a mature man. Wow, wow, what a church. But it's a very kind of lowly doorway to get in. The opening verses, lowliness, patience, forbearance. That's the, that's the way in. That's the way we come in. But when our hearts are one, because we're diligent, being diligent to maintain this unity. We need the Holy Spirit desperately, desperately. And so possible for church life, albeit weakening and weakening church life, to not bother about the Holy Spirit. But we need the Holy Spirit so much. And to have the presence of the Spirit, and to really treasure it, we have to see these are the ways that Paul sets out. Life in the Spirit, guarding, maintaining unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So have we got problems with anybody? Let's get right, shall we? Forgiving our brother, our sister, 70 times 7. Showing mercy, showing forbearance, bearing with one another. That's what it says. That's what this opening section to this magnificent chapter is about, walking worthy. Paul's writing from prison. He kind of lays on the pathos a bit. I, the prisoner of the Lord, you know, I'm paying the big price. Now, please, walk worthy. Don't mess up. Let's be a glorious church. Let's be a glorious church. So great as a guest to come in here and see you filling the place. God's blessing. People being added. Wonderful. Let's be a provocation to this neighborhood. Let's be a people. When you come in, you think, what is this? What is this? But it doesn't come easy. It comes being diligent, maintaining that unity. So that's what these first three chapters, verses are about. I call you to live worthy of this calling with which you've been called. You weren't called before. It's just Gentiles. Only Israelites were called. Now it reaches out to us, us far-off Gentiles. We are brought into the people of God. Now let's walk worthy of it. We're sons of God. We're children of the King. And we need one another. We can't do it alone. We can't do it alone. That was one of my heartaches as a newly converted person. I got, I got saved. I went to a wonderful Baptist church. Beautiful pastor. Wonderful preacher. A big 700 church. Terrific. We used to say at the end of the meetings, don't forsake the gathering of yourself together. That was his closing word often. In other words, be here next week. Don't forsake the gathering. But he didn't quote the whole verse. It says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together, but encourage one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Hey, don't forsake, encourage. But you see, beloved, we were not encouraging anybody. I didn't know anybody. 700 strangers shook his hand at the door. 
Thank you, Pastor. See you next week. That was it. It was wonderful teaching, but that was it. We weren't encouraging one another. In fact, there are over 40 one another verses in the New Testament. Over 40. We weren't doing any of them. Not one of them. It says, encourage one another. Speak the truth to one another. Confess your faults to one another. Admonish one another. I mean, 40. Because we're a body. We're meant to be doing stuff for one another. That needs the Holy Spirit's help. You can have church with just one guy speaking without the Holy Spirit. Because well, who needs the Holy Spirit? We just turn up. But if we're getting our lives integrated, we're getting into small groups, we're getting into one another's lives, we're praying for one another, we're standing with one another, we're speaking the truth to one another, we're forgiving one another, we're confessing our faults to one another. Hey, we grow up together. But you can't do that if there's tension. So this passage is terrifically relevant. Mercy, patience, forbearance, welcoming the presence of the Spirit. May that be our desire. If there's anything in your heart, come on and say, Lord, sorry, I, I will forgive. I will I'll build that relationship again. And actually, it's so much easier in our world than it was in Paul's world, where the divisions were so incredible. But our society is getting more and more divided. We need to, Lord, help us to be a unique, alternative society. Amen? Amen. Well, God bless you with that. Uh, just one more thing. I was praying before I came. I was so blessed when Adam brought the word he shared. I felt, I, I, I want to pray with anybody. When we just, I don't know if you're seeing or what, but when we finish the meeting, um, I'd love to pray for anybody who's got lower back pain and it sometimes shoots down to the sciatic nerve got lower back pain, I'd love to pray for you. And I believe you'll be healed. And if you've got arthritic knees, I'd love to pray for you. Or if you've got neck and shoulder, you can't move your neck, I'd love to pray for you. And I believe God will be here. And so, you know, we're going to close the meeting. There's coffee. There's amazing books. <laughs> oh, there's prayer to have healing. Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence here. Thank you for this lovely church. Thank you for the joy of worshipping those who led us so beautifully. Lord, thank you. Bless us, Lord, in your word. Bless us as we try to live out this life worthy of our calling. Make it real for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.